kids to children's church. Ooh, no, no, oh no. I had my finger on the clicker. A lot. Oh my goodness. And this is all going on the recording too. Good morning, everyone. My name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC. You all well know that. Uh, We're going to work through our kingdom series again. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 through 7. If you have your Bibles, I'd love if you'd open up to Matthew 5. We have the handouts that we brought. We also have a YouVersion Bible event in the Bible app if you like to read the Bible that way. But before we do any of that, why don't we go to God in prayer? Father God, I thank you so much for your word and the opportunity that you give us to read your word, to study it, and to apply it to our lives. I ask that you would be with us today as we dive into your scriptures, that you would soften our hearts to hear the message. God, I ask that you would be with me as I preach, that you would make my words clear and concise, that you would help the listeners to know your word. And most importantly, we thank you so much for your son Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Okay. So, some of you might know this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to college right now. I'm taking classes online to get my Master of Divinity class. I'm going through seminary classes. And one of the, one of the classes I took this semester was a preaching class. And I just finished up the semester... And I was looking through my notes, and there was a list of of don'ts that they told us not to ever do when you're preaching a sermon. So they said, number one, they said, never start your sermon out just by reading the Bible, because people will get bored, and and they'll tune out, and you'll lose people in in your sermon. The second thing they told me to never do was to just never just read through verse by verse from top to bottom and go through the scripture. They said people will, they won't understand it, you want to make sure you organize it and say, this is my first point, my second point, and this is my theme, and all of that. And then they said, never, if you're going to read more than th- two chapters, never read every line of scripture. Always summarize, because you'll lose people's interest if, if you don't shorten things and make it more digestible. Okay, with that said, I'm going to break all three of those rules, because I think that's silly a little bit. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're just going to go through it. I want to just jump right in. I'm not going to give you a theme or a direction or anything like that. I just want to just jump right into the scripture, and we're going to read every single word of Matthew 5. This is Matthew's, or excuse me, this is Jesus' first big speech in the book of Matthew. This is, you can think of this as one of the first major pillars that Matthew is weaving the life of Jesus around. Matthew 5.1 says, When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so this up the mountain. (coughs) Remember, this comes immediately after Jesus has given his mission statement. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he goes up on this mountain to teach his disciples And Matthew's original readers would have instantly thought of another person going up on a mountain to give the word of God. It would have been very reminiscent of Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law from God. 
And so that's kind of what we're getting here in Matthew 5 through 7. We're getting Jesus' new law, new Ten Commandments. That's how Matthew is setting it up for us. It says, Then he began to teach them. Then he sat down and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then Jesus is going to give a whole list of different people. But I want you to understand that everybody in this list of blessed are, blessed are, they're all just an example of somebody who is poor in spirit, that the kingdom belongs to them. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And he turns to his disciples and says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. <clears throat> so make no mistake, Jesus is making it clear here, if you follow this king, you will have trouble. You will be persecuted. That's not an if statement, that's a will statement. When we join God's kingdom, we are instantly at odds with the world. And so the next question we need to ask is, how does Jesus expect us to act when we are in his kingdom and at odds with the world? He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by people. You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't just light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. So our actions, the way we live our life when we're at odds with the world, we should live our life in such a way where people can't help but notice the power of Christ in us. Remember, Jesus is up on the mountain. We're supposed to be being reminded of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus wants us to obey God so much, to obey the commandments of God so much, that people can't help but see Jesus. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything takes place. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough one. Because on this hand, I know that the Bible teaches us that none of us is ever actually capable of doing that. Paul says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we need a Savior. But on this hand, 
Jesus tells us you're going to have to try and do it anyway. You're going to have to live that righteously anyway. So we have this tension that we have to hold on to. And here in verse 21, what Jesus is about to do is he's about to take the Ten Commandments and he's not nullifying them. He's actually making them more strict for Christians. He says, you've heard it said to an older generation, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council. And whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. So then if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while on the way to court. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge hand you over to the warden and you will be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Verse 27, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever even looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into hell. Side note. That's a metaphor. Please don't actually do that. Jesus means to metaphorically do that. If I come back in two weeks and people are missing eyes and hands, I'm going to be upset. So please don't do that. Verse 31, he says, It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say, do not take oaths at all, not by heaven, because it is the throne of God, not by earth, because it is his footstool, and not by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, because you are not able to make one hair white or black. Yet your word be yes, yes, or no, no. More than this is from the evil one. It says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him take your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers... What more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? And then he says, so then be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that word perfect there, it's, it's not the way that you and I think of the word perfect. In the, in the original language, it's, it gives you more the idea of complete, 
whole. As if Jesus is telling us to constantly be striving toward the complete whole person that God intended us to be. And all of this, all of this stuff that Jesus said about the law, the you've heard it said, but I say, it's all for the goal in verse 16. Let your light shine so that people can see your good deeds and honor your Father in heaven. That's the point. And then he gives us the other side of the coin in verse 1 of chapter 6. If we're doing these good deeds, if we're obeying God so that people can see them and give honor to God, what happens if we take that a little bit too far and start honoring ourselves with our good deeds? Chapter 6, 1, he says, Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Thus, when you do charitable giving... Do not blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when you do your giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your gift may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in the synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not babble repetitiously like the Gentiles, because they think that by their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So being... Excuse me, being salt and light to the world, showing Christ to other people, is not the same thing as doing good deeds to get attention. And I would venture to say, and this might be a little bit controversial, but if we have to draw extra attention to ourselves to show how good of Christians we're being, I would venture to say we're not actually being that good of Christians. Jesus wants our actions to speak for themselves. Even, even the way we pray, he says, be careful. Oh, did I get the wrong? There we go. Sorry. Even the way we pray, he says, we pray this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we ourselves have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's not the prayer of somebody who wants attention. That's the prayer of somebody who understands exactly where they stand in relation to the king. Somebody who is humble, who knows he needs forgiveness. And in return, Jesus says we should be giving that same forgiveness we've received away. He says, for if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. See, when we offer forgiveness, when we receive forgiveness, when we offer forgiveness, it puts us in a relationship with God and it brings joy to our life. 
Here in verse 16, he's drawing out that. This is how we should appear to the world. He says, when you fast, do not look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others when you're fasting, but only to you, but excuse me, but only to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a very humble attitude for us to have. And I think the key to all of it, the key to how we can live out these principles, comes here in verse 19, where we get the idea, the notion that we need to keep our eyes focused on the kingdom and not ourselves. He says, do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and devouring insect destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Your Bible might say moth or rust, or some say moth and rats or moth and vermin. The word there, it literally just means things that eat, eating things. Don't store your treasures up where moth and eating things will destroy. So whether that's corrosion or insects or vermin or whatever it is, things that eat up. The point is, if we keep our sights on this world, everything in this world is going to be eaten up and destroyed. That's just the natural order of things. Instead, he says, accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and devouring insect or rust or vermin or whatever you want to put there do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If then your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Where are our eyes? Where are our eyes focused? He says, but if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And this is another one. Your Bible might say wealth, or your Bible might say mammon. It's another word. It just, it just means stuff. Things you accumulate, whether it's money or stuff or social status. Jesus says, don't focus on any of that stuff here on earth. <clears throat> we get into verse 25. He doesn't even want us to be focusing on our basic necessities for living. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body. What you will wear, isn't there more to life than food and more to the body than clothing? You get how amazing of a command that is for us? Jesus wants us to be so committed to him, so focused on him, that we're not even worried about basic things like food and water above him. That's a big deal. He says, look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? 
And which of you, by worrying, can add even one hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothing? Think about how the flowers of the field grow. They don't work or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tossed into the fire to the heat of the oven, won't he clothe you even more, you people of little faith? So then don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the unconverted pursue these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But above all, above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness and these things will be given to you as well. So then do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. If anybody ever told you that being a Christian was going to be easy, it's not. This is a radical command that Jesus is giving us. Because who here realistically has never worried about money or food or shelter? I can't put my hand up. The church and Christianity is not a once a week place where you go. Jesus is describing a radical transformation. And look, I don't, I don't live up to it. I don't think any of us does. That's the point. And so the last thing that I'm about to do is to go stand on the street and start trying to fix the problems of people who sin in different ways than I do. Matthew 7, 1, he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And by the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there is a beam in your own? You hypocrite. First, remove the beam from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Just as a side note, I don't buy into the idea that Jesus is trying to tell us that just as soon as we fix our sin, then we can go out and judge other people. Because I don't think there's ever going to be a time in which we get that beam out of our eye. I don't think any of us gets to that point. I'm still working on my beam. Now, can you and I team up and help each other work on our sin? Absolutely. Absolutely we can. Can I point out places where I might be able to help you with your sin? Yeah. Can you do the same for me? Please do. Because I need it. I think all of us do. And he gets into verse 6. And he says, do not give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before pigs. Otherwise, they will trample them under feet and turn around and tear you to pieces. And I think, in my opinion, this is one of the most difficult parts of Jesus' sermon to understand. And I think it helps if we realize where it comes. It comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, don't judge Take the log out of your own eye. Don't be concerned about the speck in your neighbor's eye. 
dogs and pigs in Jewish culture were unclean animals. So in a sense here, throwing your pearls before pigs is, is basically he's representing anything or anyone who's not a follower of God, something unclean. And I, and I don't think that it's meant to be insulting. I think it was just a metaphor that the Jews at that time would have understand. It would have clicked with them. Imagine what it would be like if someone came into ACC and they were struggling with their faith and they were like, well, you know, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not sure where I am with my faith. I, I have a bit of a drinking problem and I, I don't know really where I stand. What would it be like if that person came in and right out of the gate I was like, well, I hope you know you're a wretched sinner and you're going to hell. I mean, technically... We're all wretched sinners, and we all deserve the fiery pits of hell. That's in the Bible, but you think I'm going to make any traction with that person that way? By giving them part one of the gospel? Part one of the gospel is we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. Part two is Jesus died so that we don't have to go there. I think this pearls before swine throwing something precious is basically saying if you take the gospel message, something that's very precious, and you're just throwing it at the wall trying to see what sticks before you make a relationship with somebody, before you try to understand where they're coming from, that's not going to change anybody's life. Our job as Christians is not to fix people. Our job is not to make people better. Our job as Christians is to introduce people to Jesus and allow him to make them better and allow him to fix them. Allow him to transform them. And he will. Jesus absolutely will transform your life. Chapter 7, verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is a verse we've talked about in a couple different ways. In the context of everything Jesus is saying here, everything that has led up to this point about the unattainable standard that he's setting for us as Christians, these values that he wants us to strive for, I think he's saying that if we are in a relationship with him, if we are allowing the Holy Spirit to work with us, if we are asking God to change our hearts, if we're knocking on the door, asking God to change our hearts, he will transform us. And I think it helps for us to understand that every single Christian is somewhere in the process of having his or her heart changed. Nobody has arrived yet. We're all on that path. He says, in everything, treat others the way you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. 
treat other people as if they are in the process of having their heart changed, but they haven't arrived yet, because that's where we are. With grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's how I would want somebody to treat me as a work in progress. We're all doing our best to stay on this narrow path, this unattainable standard that Jesus is setting for us. He says, enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction and there are many who enter it. How narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it. And I think this includes not only the way we live our lives, not only the way we, way we teach and spread the gospel, but also the things and the people we allow to influence our lives. We should be on guard. Verse 15, he says, Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorns or figs from thistles, are they? In the same way, every good tree bears fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many powerful deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you lawbreakers. Because Jesus' standard is so high and because every one of us is unable to attain that unattainable standard, we should be on guard for who we let influence us. And that includes me. If you want a really easy rule of thumb or on who these false prophets, these people we should be watching out for, I think we should go back and read what we just read and see if those people are teaching what Jesus taught. Really quick aside, will somebody please call or text Virginia and let her know to start coming back up? Sorry, I just want to make sure that she gets up here for announcements and songs. Thank you, sorry. If someone is telling us to act differently than the way Jesus tells us to act here in this sermon. That's, that's bad fruit. If I ever tell you or preach to you to do something different than the way Jesus tells us to act, I please call me out on it. Let me know. You're straying from that narrow path. And it's not just our words. It's not just about what we say and what we teach and how we act. It's about what we do. Jesus wants words 
and action. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because its foundation had been laid on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not, and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against the house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. All right, I realize that we just went through, sorry about that. I realize we just went through a lot of Bible. That was three full chapters, and we read every single word. And what's funny about this sermon, about this message of Jesus, is if you actually dive in and read what Jesus is saying, it's kind of a fiery sermon. It's very difficult. It's one of those messages where he's basically just told us all, here's all of the ways in which you're failing. Now do better. And yet, every time I read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I walk away feeling inspired and uplifted. Every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sees me and understands the places where I need to do better. But it's a hard sermon. So how is he able to preach these hard things and make us feel so uplifted and inspired? I, I could never preach this sermon. Because if I preached to you the way Jesus preached to us, you guys would be like, oh, it's one of those hellfire and brimstone fiery preachers. That's, that's annoying, right? Side note, if today's message felt convicting, if it felt a little bit hellfiery and brimstony, that wasn't me, because I read every single one of Jesus' words. Jesus is able to preach this sermon that's so harsh and so critical and still leave us feeling uplifted and inspired because he's the king. Because he has the authority Josh McKay and Alliance Nebraska can't get away with it, but Jesus can. It says, when he finished teaching these things, the crowds were amazed by his teaching because he taught them like one who has authority, not like the experts in the law. If we have a right orientation to the king, we will receive the kingdom. And it's a hard life. It's a high bar that Jesus sets for us. But he wants us to keep our eyes focused on kingdom things. Not on the world, not on our worries, not on our possessions, not on the sins of other people, but on him. And if we do that, he will transform our lives and give us a life-altering transformation. And the first step to joining that kingdom is accepting that calling, accepting that standard, dying to your sins and allowing him to make a new creation out of us. Here in a moment, I'm going to sing a song of invitation. I'm going to have our, our elder Ron here up front. 
But I'd like to pray first. Father God, we just, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his difficult teaching. We thank you that you've given us a savior that somehow is able to teach us hard things and yet we feel uplifted and inspired by it. God, I just ask that you would help us to go out into the world and to do the hard things that Jesus has called us to do. That you would ask us to live up to the standards of the kingdom. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said,